This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imagination. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Cattle mutilations or strange and unexplained livestock deaths, missing vital organs and soft tissue, seemingly removed with surgical precision. No sign of struggle, no blood, no indication that the death was caused by natural predators. Bovine excision, my friends, that's where we're headed. And field investigator into the high strange, Chris O'Brien, is standing by to discuss. Uh, First, a few programming notes. There is no live YouTube stream tonight. No live YouTube stream. Uh, And that means no live chat. Sorry about that. But the live YouTube stream will return next week. Uh, Also, no what's in the box segment. No remote viewing experiment. But that too will return next week. And uh, we have uh, instituted, as you know, a new format here on the the, uh, Conspiracy Show. We have um, usually in the first hour a panel uh, and more guests, shorter segments. Uh, but from time to time, we, uh, we have to deviate from that format, and tonight is one of those times. So next week, we will be, we'll, uh, be back to our regular format. Uh, Albert and Ryan will be here. Uh, our panel uh, will be back. Media scientist Nelson Thal and Joel Skousen, uh, the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, will be here. And uh, in the second hour, open lines, followed by Dr. Stephen Greer. A typical cattle mutilation story begins when the remains of a victim animal have been discovered. Most commonly, the remains have been found in some open field by a rancher, farmer, or other unlucky individual. The animal in question is commonly reported to have been in good health just days prior to the discovery, so the death is unexpected and natural causes seem unlikely. The body itself appears to have been mutilated after death. Oftentimes, external body parts are missing, such as the ears, the eyes, the sex organs, or the tongue. In some cases, flesh even appears to have been stripped off of the skull. 
Witnesses insist that the edges of the wounds are smooth and clean, as though done with a surgeon's scalpel. A scalpel also appears to have split open the stomach of many animals, and internal organs have been removed. A conspicuous absence of blood is another common feature. Always, the witnesses claim that there are no footprints, tire tracks, or scavenger prints leading either towards or away from the body. The death is a mystery, and foul play of some kind is assumed. Okay, let's talk cattle mutilations. From 1992 to 2002, Christopher O'Brien investigated over 1,000 paranormal events reported in the San Luis Valley, located in south-central Colorado, north-central New Mexico. Working with law enforcement officials, ex-military, ranchers, and an extensive network of sky watchers, he documented what may have been the most intense wave of unexplained activity ever seen in a single region of North America. His 10-year investigation resulted in, the, in three books of his Mysterious Valley trilogy, The Mysterious Valley, Enter the Valley, and Secrets of the Mysterious Valley. His meticulous field investigation of UFO reports, unexplained livestock deaths, haunted sites, Native American legends, cryptozoology, secret military activity, and the folklore found in the world's largest alpine valley has produced one of the largest databases of unusual occurrences gathered from a single geographic region. He's currently working with a team of specialists installing a high-tech video surveillance and hard data monitoring system in and around the San Luis Valley. His latest book is Stalking the Herd, and it's published by Adventures Unlimited Press. Chris, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Very good. Thank you uh, for having me, Richard. If you were to put uh, pins on a, on a big map of the United States, could we identify clusters where these cattle mutilations, livestock mutilations are happening? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we've been doing that for over 40 years. Um, we do actually have an extensive map that shows uh, areas of high incidence, which um, for the most part are, are um, I would say generally are in the Rocky Mountain states up into Alberta. Um, and then across the uh, the Midwest and across the Canadian Plains, um, all the way to uh, the Mississippi. And then they start to drop off on the um, extreme East Coast and on the extreme West Coast. Pretty much the middle of the country is where you'll have more pins in, in places than the, uh, the map will actually be able to, to uh, take. What I, what I like about your work, Chris, is you approach this as a, as a hard-nosed skeptic. And... You know, we don't hear a lot from you about necessarily about, you know, UFOs and tractor beams taking cows on board motherships and dropping them in strange places and <laughs> and that sort of thing. But there, it, break it down for me. The, the percentage with your personal uh, experience in invest, investigations, the percentage that are readily explainable by natural predation or some other natural, more prosaic explanation, and those what are what you sort of categorize as the high strange? Well, for the, for the most part, uh, you know, the ranchers and uh, the ranching community does not report um, scavenger kill, uh, you know, predator kills and scavenging for the most part. Two percent of their herds die every year, and they're and they're used to seeing dead animals. They're used to seeing what happens once they die, how the uh, you know from a variety of scavengers, from the four-legged varmints to to birds uh, to insects, maggot blooms, um, that sort of thing. They're, they're very very uh, familiar with the process uh, that occurs after an animal dies. It's these uh, stranger cases that uh, tend to be the ones that get reported. 
But you really have to analyze this as a societal, um, in a societal context. If local papers get a hold of, of real cases that are, are um, apparently high strange, not only to the rancher, but to investigators and law enforcement, if papers get a hold of that and write an article, um, then you might even see a few cases that are misidentified by, by you know, people just passing by a pasture and seeing a dead cow and looking at what's a natural process and, and because they're not familiar with it, uh, thinking that it's high strange. So that tends to generate a few, a few false positives, if you will. Um, it's only when you really hit the regional um, news services that it really creates a lot of problems with misidentified scavenger action. Scavengers are very, very, <laughs> very efficient. And um, I've seen magpies, for instance, carve a, a perfectly circular hole in the rear end of a cow that looks like it was it could have been drawn with a compass. Um, some of these unusual scavenger action uh, appearance, if you if you will, can fool even veterinarians. So um, it's it's really difficult to to put numbers on it. I I would say that out of the real cases that appear to have been cut with a sharp sharp implement, that maybe ten percent are are really high strange, and the other let's say 80 to 90% could could very well have been done by by skillful humans um, wielding uh, fairly sophisticated surgery techniques. 10% still. I mean, that sounds like a small number, but when we're talking about, you know, this arena, 10% is, is a sizable number. Christopher O'Brien is with us. His latest book is Unraveling the Cattle, or sorry, Stalking the Herd. Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery. Stalking the Herd, Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery. And uh, his uh, website is OurStrangePlanet.com. Um, you, you began sort of describing some of the, uh, the outward appearances of uh, one of these cattle mutilation cases, and that is the, um, the excision uh, various animal or various parts of the of the cow of the life. The soft tissue organs. The soft tissue generally, organs. Like an yeah. eye will be missing, uh, possibly an ear will be um, excised uh, with a neat circle around the around the uh, the ear down to the skull. Um, often, if it's a female, the female reproductive organs are taken out like a, like a, a plug, uh, sometimes 18, 20 inches deep into the animal. Um, the the udder. Uh, Part of the other, the, the entire udder um, oftentimes is reported missing. The real telltale sign that uh, investigators look for, and, and, and this sign is what makes the uh, case into a classic mute, as we call them, or a classic mutilation, is when the, jand uh, the mandible flesh on the jaw is excised and, and expertly cut away, and the jawbone is, is unnaturally white. There's very, very little, if any, uh, tissue, muscle, um, any sort of uh, you know soft organic tissue on the jawbone, and generally that would indicate that the tongue has been excised from deep within the throat, and possibly uh, some of the um, uh, your glands uh, in the throat uh, could possibly have been taken. So it's it's generally the organs that humans develop cancer uh, most readily, uh, interestingly enough. And, uh, that are removed. You know, these are also, also the organs that, that scavengers go after, too, because they're soft tissue, and it's the easiest way into the body cavity where all the, uh, <laughs> the delectables are. Uh, so you have to be very careful when you're, 
when you're looking at these cases, only a veterinary pathologist really is in a position to determine whether an animal has been, uh, you know, targeted with intelligence, shall we say. Um, I'm not a veterinary pathologist, but I've I've been taking notes for a long time. I've been out with with veterinarians, uh, with crime scene investigators and law enforcement, with brand inspectors and and you tend you tend to become a little bit more up to speed and and your your learning curve tends to flatten out once you've been out on <laughs> several dozen cases um, i personally have been out on around 200 and and again of those you would say 10% are categorized as high strange well 40% uh, uh, 40 of them let's say 40 i would say 40 out of those uh, 200 were definitely Without any question in my mind, uh, these animals were killed somehow, targeted, and then and then ex- experimented on with sur- with surgery. And out of those, there were about six six or seven that really were freaky that uh, had some of the earmarks of a high strange case, a paranormal case even. Mm. Uh, I think at the very core, we're dealing with something supernatural. I think there is some sort of undefined predator that's lurking about in the ethers, if you will. Uh, for lack of a better uh, description, and I think that the human cases are are trying to figure out maybe what that pre- predator uh, uh, intelligence, what it's up to, and so I think these the, the human cases tend to happen afterwards, and they they tend to spread out from the initial uh, the initial case, and uh, you know then you'll have helicopter sightings, which are rarely mentioned uh, by some of the more popular researchers out there that have their little cults of personality and. Uh, are trying to convince everybody this is aliens. Uh, they forget about the over 400 or so helicopter sightings that have been uh, right. documented in and around mutilation sites since the uh, mid 70s, early to mid 70s. So. How did that start, Chris? How did we, we? And we just have two minutes, and we'll and we'll start this okay. conversation now, and then pick it up on again after the break. But how did this connection between cattle mutilations and UFOs begin? Uh, very simply, the very first publicized case that went around the world, the very first really well-known case, uh, occurred in the San Luis Valley, where I lived for 13 years, uh, right near the Great Sand Dunes, um, and it was the Snippy the Horse case, and the animal was found, uh, it was an Appaloosa horse found with all the tissue and muscle and flesh and hide missing from the tip of its nose all the way to its shoulders. And uh, when the story was kind of covered up for about uh, three weeks or a month, and then the owner came out and told the the regional press that flying saucers had come down and killed her horse. And the the link has been there ever since. (laughs) All right. That was Uh, in 67. 1967. Here we are 50 years later. Um, But in, in... That may sort of, for many people in, in, in the public's consciousness, be sort of a patient zero or victim zero, if you will. But you've, yeah. you've looked back. I mean, cattle mutilations, the high strange variety, go back far, far more into our past, hundreds and hundreds oh, yeah. of years, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the earliest recorded case I can find was actually hundreds of sheep that were mutilated in and around London uh, in 1606. The time of King James, uh, King James the first uh, reign, I guess. Correct. Just a few weeks after the the Guy Fox gunpowder plot, right when Shakespeare was finishing up uh, Macbeth and starting uh, rehearsals at the Globe Theater, and uh, and uh, James the first was rewriting the Christian Bible. <laughs> All right, interesting uh, uh, context there. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. Come back. Christopher O'Brien is with us. Stalking the herd, unraveling the cattle mutilation mystery. OurStrangePlanet.com is his website. And we'll come back and discuss further. Stay with us. 
Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down, and it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Christopher O'Brien, and um, it is truly one of the most disturbing, befuddling phenomenons I've ever come across. Cattle mutilation, also known as bovine excision. Uh, or unexplained livestock death and uh, the killing and, and mutilation of cattle under unusually, unusual rather, and uh, often, well, this is another sort of uh, area of contention. Uh, we, we hear that uh, these, creature, these poor creatures have been uh, exsanguinated, uh, totally drained of their blood, but then along comes a level-headed investigator like Christopher O'Brien and says, now hold on a minute, hold on a minute, this is not you know, uh, what it appears to be. These, by and large, these mutilated cattle are not drained of every drop of blood, are they? The vast majority, no, they're not. There are a few that are drained of blood, and those generally are the high strange ones that we really can't, we can't uh, figure out, uh, you know, can't figure out, you know, what technology could actually do that. You know, when you cut into the meat of a dead animal, um, if the meat's pink uh, into red, obviously there's blood in there. But if you if you cut into it and the meat is is pale pink or gray, then uh, that would indicate that there's been some sort of exaggeration process that has occurred. Whether the animal has been tapped and 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 pumped its own blood out, or whether there's some some type of machine that can do it. Um, but these cases are really rare uh, in my in my estimation, based on my experience. Um, a lot of times when the rancher approaches the animal, you know, he looks down at it. And, of course, he's horrified because he's, you know, lost, you know, anywhere from, you know, 500 to, uh, you know, many thousands of dollars of an investment. And, um, you know, he looks at it and he doesn't see maybe the wounds are bleeding. Uh, he doesn't doesn't notice any any real apparent blood. Well, you just got to remember your basic science. Uh, gravity has a habit of pulling liquids down to the lowest point in the body, creating lividity and and pooling the blood in in the lower extremities and in the and in, in the body cavity and I, I don't know how many times that I've had a rancher say well they drain this animal of blood and I'd say well here give me a hand and we'd flip it over and whoosh here comes all the uh, you know gr- granted a lot of the moisture has been wicked away uh, I do live in you know at the time I lived in a semi-arid desert so especially in the the dry climate you're going to have a lot of the the moisture is going to wick away from the blood and you'll you'll just have the hemoglobin and and you know lots of red blood cells and the and in 
you know, the more visceral parts of the <laughs> aspect of the blood will be there in the body cavity. And all you have to do is turn it over and, and there's all your uh, constituent elements. So, um, you know, in my experience, uh, the draining of blood is, I think, I think it's, it's rather the exception than the norm. Right. But there have been exceptions. Tell me about oh, yeah. the, the 200 or so cattle mutilation cases you've investigated in the field. I mean, you don't just write about this stuff and, and, and look at newspaper headlines. You're out, oh, no. you know, roll up your sleeves, get, your, get dirt under your fingernails, you go out into the field uh, and yeah. examine these creatures. Give me your, your best high, your high strange case, your best one. Well, uh, the Del Norte calf was, was by far the, the, the one that was the most uh, <laughs> disturbing to me. Um, the sheriff got a call from the rancher went out there uh, in the town of Del Norte, which is on the western side of the center of the San Luis Valley, which is the world's largest alpine valley. We're talking at an altitude of the valley floor at 7,500 feet, totally ringed by mountains, going up, uh, you know, 14ers. We have seven 14,000-foot mountains and then a whole slew of 10 to 13 um, that surround the entire valley. And, and Del Norte is in Rio Grande County. And the sheriff went out there, and it just snowed. Uh, this was early March. 1998. It had just snowed five inches the night before, and uh, the rancher had found the animal out in the pasture, lying in a pristine snow snowfall. The heat of the animal had dried, had uh, had uh, evaporated the snow, but its imprint lay perfectly untouched in the snow, and the animal was listing, list, uh, missing its entire front leg, um, which was taken away. The upper respiratory organs, the rib cage and the spine had been taken. The spine had been snapped out in an upwards motion, which is impossible because the hide was there. So we don't know how actually they got the spine out because but by the way that the, the, the remaining discs uh, at the base of the skull and at the top of the hips, the way those discs uh, were situated, uh, it, the, the spine couldn't have been taken out through the, through the uh, excision that took away the leg. Um, it was very strange. Uh, there was absolutely no blood. Uh, the heart and liver had not been a perfectly drop. excised. Not a drop and, and of blood. Laid in the body cavity. Not a drop anywhere. No, uh, well, there's one drop on the, on the left rear hoof. Okay. But there was not one drop of blood in a pristine five-inch snowfall. Now, I don't know how, do you, how you explain that. The brain was missing. It had a completely dry brain case. Uh, there was no break into the cranium. Oh, my uh, One Lord. eye was gone. Uh, the animal appeared uh, to have some sort of retarded necrotic process uh, somehow. There was no uh, smell of rot. He dragged it into a heated garage for several days, uh, I think about a week. And I, when I went back there, um, I literally put my nose down to, to the carcass and I could not smell one cadaverine molecule, which is the molecule that makes dead meat stink. Right, uh, right. Um, instead, I, I smelt a, this faint... Um, smell of like a medicinal smell, uh, some some sort of antiseptic type smell. Wasn't formaldehyde. And, no, it wasn't. It wasn't formalin or formaldehyde, but it it, it smelled like a, like some sort of antiseptic, like they would put on a on a on a patient before they they perform surgery. Um, mm. th this animal was definitely targeted. There was no question about it. There were no tracks anywhere. Uh, the rest of the herd was completely spooked all the way at the other side of the. Of the of the um, pasture and extremely agitated, uh, the rancher really knew his stuff. He's one of the better ranchers in the area, and uh, we did have strange light reports from two different uh, sources, two different witnesses. The the night uh, we think that the animal was targeted, 
um, people saw uh, strange lights out in the pastures uh, in that part of of the county. So uh, what does that, that mean? One though, went Chris? down in in my uh, <laughs> my book is the as 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 the most spectacular one or, or most startling one. I'll say. But what does that mean? Strange lights. I mean, could it have been a helicopter? Maybe maybe some government agency swoops down without getting out of the helicopter, without landing. They scoop up this hapless creature, take it back to a lab somewhere, and and use, who knows, lasers or whatever. I mean, is that within the realm of possibility? Yeah, it is. Um, I, this, this particular animal uh, did not appear to have any sort of high heat uh, involved in the, as a cutting agent. Those cases are fairly rare. Um, you get this this pop culture sort of view of this that all these animals are being cut by lasers. No, they're not. Uh, very, very few. Um, I only had a handful, three or four, I think, that showed any evidence of high heat. They do occur, but um, but again, they're they're just a small percentage of the cases. You know, I have a theory that these animals are being targeted by by helicopters. Um, there may be some sort of apparatus underneath, some sort of claw that's able to to grab them. We found animals with ex- lots of bruising on their backs. We've had many, many animals, uh, hundreds of animals have been described as being dropped from a great height with horns driven into the skull, you know, all the bones broken, legs twisted around from 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 hitting the ground extremely at extreme speed with all the weight of the animal uh, behind it. Uh, so. You know, I have this theory that they're picking them up somehow, and they're taking them to a to a, a secluded spot that has a semi truck sitting there. But the semi truck has a has a uh, retractable roof or ceiling on the trailer, and they just drop it right in onto some sort of uh, operating table after uh, darting the animal or and rendering it incapacitated. Um, this would be the the most obvious way to get the smaller animals, the heifers and the uh, and the younger animals. Now, how are you going to do that to a 2,500-pound Angus bull or a Simitol or, you know, some of these huge uh, bulls that have been reported mutilated? I don't know. It, it, it would be you would be very hard pressed to have a helicopter that could even lift one. Uh, some of them are so big, uh, without you know a helicopter without you know drawing lots of attention. But uh, you know, in rural areas, a lot a lot of times. Uh, these animals are out of sight of highways or roads or out of sight of ranching homes. Um, they tend to they tend to be uh, a good deal of them tend to be fairly, you know, in the in the farther reaches of the ranch, and uh, that I think by targeting those animals, it, it accomplishes several things. One, they might not be discovered for a few days, which would then render any sort of post-mortem investigation impossible because the animal's already starting to rot. And the other thing, again, as I described, is they're going to be out of sight. And, uh, you know, maybe the ranch animals won't bark or the dogs won't bark. And, and it's just it's just going to, I think, uh, it's going to create a a situation more conducive for stealth. Let's put it that way. Christopher O'Brien is with us, and his uh, latest book is Stalking the Herd, Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery. OurStrangePlanet.com uh, is, is the website. Uh, let's, uh, let's look at one of the more prosaic explanations, which really isn't all that ex- uh, prosaic. I mean, it's pretty bizarre. But let's say it is, you know, the men in black a helicopter. It's uh, some uh, government agency, and they're doing these experiments on these, on these cattle. Uh, what are they looking for? Prions that cause mad cow? Are they tracking virulent diseases? What are they doing? Yeah, that that makes the most sense to me, and I'm not the only one that has that uh, particular theory at the top of uh, my list. Uh, the National Institute for Discovery Sciences (NIDS), um, famous for buying the Utah Skinwalker Ranch, Robert Bigelow's group back in the '90s and 2000, 
up to I think they were in they were uh, an organization until 2005. They had a, a really good veterinary pathologist um, that went out to these cases. Um, the managing director was a uh, Mike uh, was a microbiologist named Colm Kelleher, and he wrote a book called. Brain Trust, which looked at the outbreak of, of mad cow in Canada, and then the outbreak of mutilations uh, quickly occurring around the region, almost methodically um, uh, around the area where the, the animal with the prion disease was was discovered. And uh, he came up with a theory that, yeah, that's what's going on. We're, we're seeing a monitoring of, of some sort of quasi-governmental monitoring of the food chain, basically, and it's it's not where the cow is. Um, it's it's where the where the cow is in in the environment, and so it, it seems like there's environmental sampling going on. Um, I I had um, interesting uh, newspaper or paper article was sent to me from the Westward Magazine in Denver, and it was an expose uh, by a former EPA scientist named Brian Rimmer. He had been tasked with raising uh, sheep and other grazing animals uh, along the Alamosa River in the San Luis Valley, and um, and the reason being is up 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 river in in the mountains, uh, right near the super uh, super fun site at the Summitville Gold Mine, they had trashed the upper seventeen to twenty miles of the river with heavy metals and arsenic and and just nasty stuff and ah. just killed everything. And so he was downstream, forty miles down and out into the valley. And this you got to understand that this river has lots of canals that feed off into uh, irrigation systems for farmers and ranch um, and uh, water for ranchers and water for people's drinking water as well, uh, the water table there. So he was tasked with raising animals for 90 days, and then they would take the animals, take them into the laboratory, uh, snuff them, and then do workups on their, their organs and see uh, what the effect of the Superfund cleanup site had uh, in the water. Sure. Well, they found... They found incredible amounts of, of copper and other heavy metals, and and he uh, he he went to his superior and said, "Look, the, I can't even believe these animals are still alive. We should warn the farmers and ranchers, you know, uh, that we found the, these results." And he was forbidden to. The EPA said, "No, you're not. You're not going to start a panic." And he he got so incensed that he actually quit his job and he did a whistleblower expose with Westward Magazine and actually sued them, sued the EPA. Well, I find it interesting during that time period, if you went a few miles down the river, uh, <laughs> that's where I had seven mutilation cases. Aha, I see what's going right on Right on here. the Alamosa River and also on some of the canals and feeders, uh, feeder uh, ditches that come off the Alamosa River. But all the mutes were on waterways that were coming directly from the Alamosa River over about an 18-month period. Bingo. We're heading into a break, but here it is. So now, instead of uh, you know trusting some farmer to, to raise these cattle uh, for 90 days so they can experiment, they don't want any more whistleblowers. They're going to do it in the dead of the night, on their own, no questions asked, uh, and no restitution to the poor rancher. Back with more of my conversation with Christopher O'Brien, Stalking the Herd, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra from Zoomer Radio. We continue to delve into one of the most, uh, well, it's one of the most bizarre uh, phenomenon I've ever come across in, in uh, doing this program for 20 years, and that is uh, the cattle mutilation uh, phenomenon. Christopher O'Brien is the author of Stalking the Herd, Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery, and he is a field investigator. He rolls up his sleeves and he gets down and dirty and um, really approaches this, I think, like no other, with a, with a real level head and a rational mind and doesn't jump to conclusions and probably has taken uh, considerable heat for that from <laughs> others that would like to sensationalize this. Am I correct, Chris? Oh, boy. Uh, you are. I, I've been, I've been uh, trying to... I mean, just when I first started doing this investigative work in '93, I went around to the, to the you know the well-known investigators, and I said, you know, they're always moaning about how they don't get any respect, they don't get any attention. This is you know a really serious subject, and I said, well, maybe the word mutilation itself just kind of turns people off. Why don't you come up with a better way of describing these things? Oh no, that that that's shock value. We need that, and it's mm. like, well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want to have shock value and not turn people off. You have to come up with a better term that's more accurate. These animals are not mutilated. Mutilation, to me, is almost like a, a just a frenzied hacking. Right, like <laughs> a ma- being mangled. Yeah, they're experimented on. They're not mangled. They are as right. That's right. They are um, experimented on. We were talking about um, the possibility that that some the the EPA may be behind this that now they are surreptitiously testing these animals because they tried it the other way. They had a, uh, somebody raise the cattle for 90 days, then they did the experiments, they found something, heavy metal contamination, then they didn't want to divulge it and cause a panic, so then they created a whistleblower scenario, so they, don't want, they want to avoid that now. Is that what's going on? Yeah. So now they're doing it well, in the dead yeah, of night? Well, yeah, and I think you know, people say, well, why don't they just take the animals? And you know, they did that in 71. They did not leave the the animals behind, and all these cases turned into grand theft larceny, you know, larceny <laughs> cases, uh, because the animals were taken. You know, police reports are being filed. People, you know, all the ranchers in in Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, where all these cases were occurring, they they were starting to form vigilante groups, run around armed, shoot at helicopters, and then in '72, not one case was reported, not one mutilation was reported. And and uh, there, all this stolen animal scenario totally uh, totally chilled out and quieted down, and then in '73, boom, we had the start of the modern phase of the mutilation phenomenon where the animals were left behind. Now think about it: when you leave the animal behind, what are you accomplishing? One, there is no uh, stolen property. Uh, two, you always have plausible deniability. You can always say, oh, it's just it's just scaven- predator and scavengers. You don't know what you're looking at. And three, you can target certain ranching communities uh, to maybe 
subjugate them, then put them in fear. A lot of these areas of high incidence also have lots of militia groups and very patriotic Americans, which is something that you don't really hear about too much from the other popular investigators. You also don't hear – Wait, wait. let that, me just – hang on. Let me follow up on that thread. So what are you right? – they're trying to intimidate these patriot groups? Is that what they're trying to do? I think so. <laughs> and it's also funny how mad cow disease broke out in, in, the, in the woods where some of the most um, – uh, radical uh, ranchers, sort of militia types, uh, live in Weld County and you know the upper uh, northeast. Uh, the preppers, Colorado. Say yeah. again. The preppers. Yeah, the prepper types, exactly, and and uh, south southwestern uh, corner of Nebraska. You have very very a very very strong patriot militia presence in these areas, and I find it interesting that mad cows should break out in all the deer herds, and all these guys go there to hunt. Ah. So I mean that's a whole different topic, but basically there's another theory too that that has not gotten uh, that's gotten short shrift, shall we say, and that is seventy to eighty percent of the ranches that were hit by the mutilators in the 70s are gone. And instead, there's huge industrial uh, feedlots and, uh, you know, modern uh, super agricultural uh, operations, super feedlots and these these industrialized uh, operations where hun- hundreds of thousands of animals are living in these filthy conditions and they have to pump, you know, 80% of the antibiotics used in, in, um, in America uh, goes into uh, cattle, 60% of the growth hormones used, uh, a sizable percentage of steroids. And, uh, you know, they, they try to get these animals fat as quickly as they can. They feed them grain, which they're not really designed by nature to uh, properly metabolize. GMO so cotton and alfalfa. Fat. Yeah, they have to keep they keep them in these terribly filthy conditions. They're walking around in a foot to two feet of feces and urine. They have to get them in, out of there as quickly as possible. So they pump them full of growth hormones, pump them full of antibiotics, pump them full of steroids, and these animals used to be living free range on small mom and pop ranches. 70 to 80% of them are gone. And I think that back in the 70s, we have cases where large ranching concerns were using the mutilation phenomenon as a way to intimidate smaller ranchers to either run them off or have them sell their land or try to put them out of business. Uh, and I have uh, some really good data and and uh, law enforcement uh, evidence to back this up. I'm sure you do, Chris. And uh, you mentioned, you know, giving it short shrift and unfortunately we'll have to do that we'll take a time out come back we can uh, touch on that a little bit more but then there's the other less prosaic the high strange cases uh, that may involve the supernatural chris o'brien stalking the herd back with more in a moment don't go away where there's smoke There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. 
We are back with Christopher O'Brien, OurStrangePlanet.com. And uh, the book is Stalking the Herd, Unraveling the Cattle Mutilation Mystery. Uh, so the, um, the sinister um, motive here, driving uh, mom-and-pop ranchers off the land so they could be replaced with uh, these basically uh, uh, sort of industrial farming. And uh, we have to be careful. This is how uh, Oprah Winfrey got in trouble with the beef industry. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love hamburgers. I love steaks. Me uh, too. <laughs> but I like them. I like them free range. You know, from my local neighborhood here, I can just go up to the top of the hill here and look down on the herd. There you so go. So local mumia, I think, as the Greeks called it. Uh, <laughs> I don't eat industrialized beef protein. <laughs> I don't eat much beef really at all, but uh, when I do, I, I like to know where it's from and how it's raised. The, the this it begs the question is whether the the um, the the more high uh, what am I trying to say here the, the the people that are involved in this arena as you are, but are are far more sensational. Is it? I don't want to mention any names here, but is it possible <laughs> that they are in cahoots because? They seem to be really pushing this, you know, the high strange, the UFO, the alien connection. Uh, it's their careers. They're just trying to sensationalize it to, you know, create, you know, put more butts in the conference seats uh, to be on TV to, you know, they pay their bills with this work. I, I don't. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an amateur that that has a life. Um, I, you know, this I'm, I'm actually kind of semi retired from the mutilation uh, field investigating. It's it's the least. My least favorite thing to do in life is to roll up on a dead necrotic cow that's been sitting there a little too long. It's just – it's nasty. It's disgusting. I, I, I really don't like it. So I, I moved to one of the states that they don't – that has some of the fewest numbers <laughs> of mutilation so I can so I can not be called up and dragged out of bed or, you know, whatever. Um, I've ridden up to two and a half, three hours to a case. Just, you know, the, the, the rancher's wife called me and then I get there and – Come to find out, the rancher didn't want her to call. He took the animal and buried it with a backhoe and took off in his truck. And you know, I had to try to track him down around town. And you know, he ducked me. And you know, it was six hours of driving time oh uh, just to get there and back. So, you know, I'm I'm really not uh, I'm not I'm not too unhappy uh, uh, not having to go out on cases. Hey, Chris, I put, put your feet up. Go lie my truck in, in six years. Oh my god! Go, you know, put your feet up. Go lie down in a crop circle. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, right. So the let's talk about those high strange cases, though. The the, uh, the one that that even have you scratching your head. You know, you mentioned the uh, the the uh, the skull that had uh, the brain had been removed from the calf skull, uh, the spine excised in a strange manner. Um, assuming that these aren't uh, EPA members doing this. What's the other possibility here? Something supernatural you mentioned. Well, you know, that's the only thing that I can really think of. I think that there's some sort of as yet undefined predator that has possibly some sort of dimensional capability, time-based. I don't know. But it's something that is is definitely a paranormal in nature. Um, I think, you know, the popular conception is it's aliens coming down to gather genetic material uh, to help uh, shore up their dying race and to help strengthen their gene pool and all this. And it's all the blood and genetic material they're after. Well, my, my answer is very simple to that, and, and I will win any argument. <laughs> if they were so interested in genetic material and blood, why don't they just pick, pick the lock on this feedlot 
and go inside and get all the genetic material they need. And nobody would be the wiser. Right. It, it, it just doesn't make sense that the aliens would be sneaking around out in, in pa the pastures of the world. And out of my list of suspects, uh, you know, ETs from outside of our closed system would be the least likely scenario in my book. I'm, that's not saying that we don't have high strange cases. We do. And they're very, very spooky. And when a rancher has one of those, chances are he's not going to report it because it's so scary. He doesn't want any attention drawn to himself. And so those cases are the least likely cases to be reported. The cases that are most likely to be reported are ranchers who don't know what they're looking at, who are real rank amateurs, which have been uh, several of those uh, in recent years uh, in southern Colorado. Uh, <laughs> Uh, ranchers that have uh, alter ulterior motives like insurance claims, that sort of thing. That's another uh, possible uh, reason for them to come forward. But the main reason to come forward is if they think that they've been targeted. If they've seen weird convoys of, of, of SUVs, if they've seen helicopters buzzing around, un unusual aerial you know, mundane aerial activity, but but unusual around their ranch, then they think that maybe the government has for some reason targeted them, and that tends to get them angry, and then they'll be more likely to go to the sheriff and report it. But but by now, after 40, 50 years of this, ranchers are pretty pretty up to speed on it, and they know that if they report it, nothing really is going to happen. I mean, there's no real recourse. You're just going to bring down, you know, these, these hotshot uh, glam investigators <laughs> coming in and trying to get you on coast to coast and you know trying to get tv <laughs> uh, shows to come and talk to you and all right, that um, right. they they're pretty gun shy when it comes to this and generally the the cases that i got were were cases i had to ferret out you know people would say oh my neighbor you know i heard my neighbor had one of these or or somebody would say my you know my uncle he had a ranch and he had these cases happen you should definitely talk to him and and sometimes it would take me 2 to 3 weeks or months even to get these people to open up but but the the best cases are the ones where the people don't report them they don't go to law enforcement they don't go to the media they don't go to to these uh you know investigator types or the newspapers or whatever I agree. Those are the most credible because, you know, they, they're not yeah. looking for publicity. I just wanted to backtrack a little minute in talking about the, sure. uh, the, the possible alien connection. And like you, I don't believe, believe it. You're right. It, they could, could easy, could far easier, it would be far easier to, to uh, pick the lock on a feedlot. But here's the other reason I don't think they'd be traveling light years to do this. In order for them to, to travel here, they would have had to have harnessed the power of the sun, essentially. So if they need to create... Uh, a certain protein or DNA molecule, they could essentially just snap their fingers, I would think. They don't need to travel, you know, four or five light years to do it. Well, you know, and I agree. And it's like in the abduction phenomenon. You know, there's there's investigators walking around with cases filled with all these recovered implants. Well, you know, all this stuff started before we really got in, into nanotechnology. I mean, you would think that an alien race, you know, a thousand years ahead of us, uh, a million years ahead of us, would have something akin to, you know, some sort of nanotech that you could never recover. You could never find it, um, even probably transmitting ones that transmit in a way that we couldn't detect. Um, you know, everybody kind of looks at, at, at these mysteries, I think, too simplistically. They don't really, um, you know, they don't use the power of rational thought. They just want to sensationalize and sensationalize and tell people, uh, you know, these these spooky stories. Um, and and to me, that is what is wrong with the field and why we're not taken more seriously by law enforcement and by the medical field and the diagnostic uh, 
uh, uh, medical field. I, I think it's really important to to try to be as circumspect about these cases and as open-minded and, and, and non, uh, you know, don't bang some sort of agenda drum and try to find, you know, only look at the cases that conform to your particular foregone conclusion. You know, and these, these investigators do tend to, you know, accent the cases where strange lights are seen, even, even structured craft uh, have been seen around mutilation sites. I'm not saying these cases don't happen, but they're extremely rare compared to the vast majority of cases. And so why look at one or two percent of the data and pretend the other 98 percent isn't there? Uh, that to me is intellectual dishonesty, and, and I, I just won't go there. I, I don't need to create a cult of personality and pay bills with this work. Well, and uh, again, th that's um, what makes you, I think, by far the most credible researcher in this field. Uh, but I do want to circle back to the high strange again and the possibility okay. that mm -hmm. we are talking about, after having said all that, these these few cases that uh, that have you up a tree, uh, and there could be some supernatural paranormal explanation. Um, is there anything? I, I, I love David Perkins' uh, idea. He seems to think that uh, you know collectively, if you if you go with a Jungarian sort of uh, view or, or idea hypothesis of the you know the collective human unconscious, you know collectively on an unconscious level, we know that cattle are extremely detrimental to the environment. They they're the largest source of freshwater pollution, the largest source of the creation of deserts, the single main reason why we're cutting down rainforests. Um, they they harbor horrific diseases. Um, such as, you know, the prion disease mm -hmm. uh, or bovine spongiform encephalopathy. I have a hard time saying that word. I, I won't even touch that Encephalopathy. one. Encephalopathy. <laughs> we need a it's whole just, show my, for my that My tongue one. doesn't like that word. Mad anyway, cow, it's called that's why BSE we call it or mad, mad cow disease. Yeah. So, you know, it's my – I just really have a, have a sense that uh, – this is a lot more complicated. Uh, let's let's put it that way. Um, a lot more complicated than than a, a single one size fits all answer. I think there are multiple multiple groups involved. You know, David Perkins' idea of the collective unconscious manifesting some sort of societal angst that's that's creating warnings for ourselves to to stop using beef as a protein source. You know, we've all heard of stigmata, right? Yes. You know, all these uh, animal death cases, by the way, only occur in Christian countries. Which uh, no other investigators really, you know, figured out. Only Christian countries have these have these it's an unusual livestock deaths. It's an excellent but, uh, point because it, it, you've, you've heard of stigmata, right? Yes, of course. Okay, well, how about if there's some sort of cultural stigmata that, that we're actually uh, collectively targeting these animals and having spontaneous uh, manifestations of of collective angst about cattle in the environment. So maybe it's us doing this. I, I love that theory. It 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 it, it touches on Gaian theory, you know, uh, right. if you will, or, or earth science uh, uh, theory. Um, it touches on on the collective unconscious and the ability of the 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 mass to to um, actually uh, create a spontaneous um, effect in the environment. Um, I, I think it's a fascinating theory. I don't think enough creating, creative thinking has been applied to this whole thing and not enough diagnostic uh, you know, veterinary pathology either. <laughs> right, right. We, we just have about two minutes left. Um, I just very quickly want to touch on this because I know that you, you have studied uh, uh, folklore from various uh, aboriginal groups. 
um, you know, the, uh, the I'm guessing maybe in that region, uh, the, the Pueblos and, the, you know, the the, oh, yeah. uh, the Navajos and so forth. Is there anything? No, the Hopi and Zuni. The, the Hopi, Navajo uh, just okay. arrived before the Spanish. All right. Anything in there, their folklore, their legends that might provide some, some hint? And we have about two minutes here. Um, not really. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't see any real, uh, correlations, uh, within, within the Native American communities. They do have certain legends of creatures, but they tend to be targeting the, the Indians themselves, not the animals. So, um, to my knowledge, no, and I've done quite a bit of digging on this. I, I did have an, uh, the last traditional elder, the Hopi, was was a, a pretty close friend uh, for 15 years, uh, Grandfather Martin. Uh, one of my dearest friends is a, a Zuni elder, Clifford Mahoudi. Um, I've talked to you know a lot of Native Americans, and uh, they just don't have uh, – they didn't see this type of thing occurring to the, to the wild game here, although buffalo, deer, elk have all been found mutilated in the modern era, uh, pigs, swine, goats, sheep. Uh, even a coyote uh, was found mutilated, lying next to a mutilated cow. I had once. Ah, so, wow. <laughs> so, in answer to your question, no. <laughs> All right, uh, Chris. Thank you so much for this. Uh, I enjoyed talking with you immensely, and we'll uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Richard, for having me on, and thanks for uh, having me on Coast to Coast as well. Anytime, my friend. Christopher O'Brien. The book is stalking the herd unraveling the cattle mutilation mystery and his website is ourstrangeplanet.com all right more show to come stay where you are say hello on twitter at richard serrett s y because i love you r e double t and as always follow the truth You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening to The Conspiracy Show on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Hi to those of you receiving this transmission on one of our affiliate stations in Canada and the United States, and hello to all of you catching the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, and TalkZone.com. The YouTube channel, of course, uh, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, Don't forget to hit subscribe. And finally, those of you who take The Conspiracy Show with you on your mobile device with the Zoomer Radio and Conspiracy Show apps, both free downloads. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. A couple of weeks ago, we lost rock historian, best-selling author, and a truly remarkable human being, R. Gary Patterson. Gary appeared with me on various radio programs, uh, both here on Zoomer Radio and other radio stations, uh, numerous times. He was a, a fan favorite on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie and Ian Punnett. He appeared on Coast with me as well. 
Gary died suddenly in his home near Knoxville uh, back on Friday, May the 26th. He and I uh, were working on a radio project at the time called Spirit of Rock Radio. And we were very close to launching that show on a station in Knoxville when Gary died suddenly. Uh, you can check out that uh, show website and, and listen to the pilot episode we produced at spiritofrockradio.com, spiritofrockradio.com. And I, I plan on pushing ahead with that project, uh, although it certainly won't be the same without Gary, but I know he would want me to see that project through. Again, it's spiritofrockradio.com. Tonight, this morning, I thought it would be fitting to jump into the time machine and go back a little ways uh, to February 2016 and replay a show marking the anniversary of the day the music died, Feb 3rd, 1959, of course, the plane crash that took the lives of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper. Here now is R. Gary Patterson, along with Peggy Sue Guerin, dear friend of Buddy Holly, and the inspiration for Buddy Holly classics Peggy Sue and Peggy Sue Got Married. Here's how that show sounded. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Three young singers who soared to the heights of show business and the current rock and roll craze were killed today in the crash of a light plane in an Iowa snow flurry. The singers were identified as Richie Valen, 17, Buddy Holly, 22, and J.P. Richardson, known professionally as the Big Popper. The aircraft charted from the Dwyer Flying Service crashed near Mason City, ironically the setting for the prominent musical... All right, as I say, hard to believe, uh, almost six decades uh, since the plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa that took the lives of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, J.P. Richardson, the uh, Big Bopper, of course, and the pilot, Roger Peterson. They were on their way to uh, the next stop in their winter dance party, uh, which was in Minnesota. Uh, didn't make it, obviously. And that's where we're going to uh, delve into over the next 45 minutes or so. Our Gary Patterson, a good friend of the program and mine, a native Tennessean with a passion for rock and roll. Gary researches, chronicles uh, some of the most enduring mysteries of rock. He's the author of The Walrus Was Paul, Hellhounds on Their Trail, Tales from the Rock and Roll Graveyard, and Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. Gary Patterson, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. How are you, Richard? Very well. How are things down in Knoxville? <laughs> well... It's strange weather. It was snowing last week and in the 60s today, so I like a variety. Now, I, I, I'm not telling tales out of school. I think you're a little bit older than me. Uh, do you remember Buddy Holly growing up, or were you too young? I was actually just a little too young, but I remember going to a record store, and I was looking through albums, and I saw this guy with these really black glasses on. I kept saying, well, this guy doesn't look rock and roll, you know? But I had no idea the songs he had written. Of course, you know, the day the music died, I was in elementary school. And I was just listening to what was on AM radio. And if it was Buddy Holly, I had no idea who it was. But a lot of people who were around back then have, you know, just incredible memories of exactly what they were doing that day and the sense of loss they felt. I remember I was doing uh, Coast to Coast one night, and I had a caller who called me and told me that he was in Florida, and the day that he heard about the plane crash that morning, that when he came to school, he put the American flag on upside down, which is a sign of distress. Right, right. 
and he said that everybody was calling the school because they thought the principal had died. And <laughs> but you know, it was just the impact on him. You yes. know, and he was just in his teens. So it had a major impact, not only in the United States, around the world. And uh, his music is eternal. I mean, people are going through the influences of Buddy Holly, where there was the Beatles, which was the very first song they recorded. They borrowed a friend's uh, cassette recorder and recorded That'll Be the Day. So everybody was into Buddy Holly that came out in the 60s and was old enough to hold an electric guitar and, and get in a band with three or four other members and and uh, create dreams and, and visions for a future. Well, I, I was uh, was not born yet when he died, uh, five years before I, I was even born. But when I listened to Buddy Holly, uh, you know, not to take anything away from the, the pioneers, the Chuck sure. Berries, the Jerry Lee Lewis's, uh, but for me, uh, Buddy Holly was almost in the, the same way the Beatles were when they released Revolver, almost like a different planet. His arrangements... I mean, 1957, 58, the arrangements, the strings, all of this, it was just out of this world. <laughs> it was. And he arranged this music for a three-piece band. Well, actually, if Nicky Sullivan, it would have been four-piece, you know, who was... Right, the, the rhythm guitar, guitarist, but, yeah. But eventually, you know, it was the production yes. that Buddy Holly was able to pull off. And the catchy lyrics. And, uh, you know, it was it was just great music. And it took rock and roll to another level. Everybody else you mentioned, if it was Little Richard, it was the piano and, uh, you know, his vocals. And But you had the same sort of R&B yes. uh, production. But Buddy Holly was revolutionary. He was different. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to get you to introduce our, our Mr. Guest here in just a moment. Okay. Uh, but let me, let's just take a quick step back and, and, and talk about that ill-fated uh, winter dance party tour, which just was kind of a mess from the get-go, wasn't it? Actually, it was. I mean, the buses, they were on school buses. They had no heat. The temperature was down to as low as 40 below zero. The guys on the bus were burning newspapers in the aisle to keep warm, and then they had to roll the windows down to get the smoke out and let the cold back in. And they would do 100 miles in one direction, do the show, then they'd have to go back the exact same direction and do another show. So it wasn't put together very well at all. And they were sitting on the school bus, traveling. Buddy Holly wanted to have his <clears throat> have his clothes laundered and to, to sleep in a bed for one night. The big bopper was sick. And uh, nobody knows why Richie Valens flipped that coin, because he had a, a terrible fear of flying. But yet he did. And uh, the day the music died, ever since Don McLean's song, is, has told a story about February making me shiver. And... Uh, Bad news on the doorstep. So the the lyrics is basically a history of rock and roll, and I think a lot of it has to do with how in the early days of rock and roll you just wanted to dance, and uh, you know the songs were just catchy and fun, and then it became very political, and then you went through the dark period. But Buddy Holly was you know always a figure of of happiness and his songs. I mean, he had some tearjerkers, but I mean, he had some, you know, just the production of his songs and the way he played, the arrangement, and how he influenced everybody that came after him. I mean, that's a legend. And I guess Danny and the Juniors are right. Rock and roll will never die because it did survive for over 59 years, didn't it? Uh, uh, quick, quick question before we get to the guest, and that is I've never understood this. Here was a, a Buddy Holly, a man, I mean, he had toured. He had toured in Australia. Uh, you know, huge at the top of his game in 1959. 
Why was he riding these, you know, buses with no heat doing this disastrous tour? Well, you know, our next guest is going to really have the definitive answer on that. But I mean, there's there's stories about uh, he was in a lawsuit involving his publishing, so he really wasn't making that kind of money, and that he needed to to go out on the road, and that was the only tour available. And if that was the case, then it was really, really sad. But I know that there were some legal issues that forced him out, and uh, I'm sure he he did not want to be on that bus. But, you know, he was going to stick it out. And uh, sadly, you know, just the whole idea of getting a plane on that night and, you know, but there's so many things that are basically not correct about the day the plane crashed. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we're still learning. So, I mean, the story's going to live forever. And uh, our next guest will have a lot to bring up about all this because I think your audience is going to enjoy it. Okay, well, we're gonna we're coming up on a break here, so we're going to introduce her right after the break. Uh, there's her first clue. I've said she is going <laughs> to come right on after the break. But before we get to the break, um, Gary, I just want to give people a little sense of where else we're going with this discussion uh, tonight regarding uh, a Buddy Holly, because your forte really is delving into a lot of the and unraveling a lot of the, the mysteries and the curses. And one of the, the the amazing, well, not amazing, one of the tragic aspects of this of this um, the story is the, I don't know if you call it a curse, the Buddy Holly curse, but the, the figures that were attached in some way or associated with Buddy Holly that also um, met an early demise. Uh, just give us a, a kind of a, a sense of that as we head into the break here. Well, if you take a look at it, there's so many names that were touched by it. Like, for instance, uh, Joe Meek, who was uh, one of the greatest English producers, had predicted that uh, through a tarot card reading that Buddy Holly would die on February 3rd. You had Ronnie Smith, who took Buddy's place on the Winter Dance Party Tour, that as soon as the tour is over, he checks himself into a sanitarium and he hangs himself. David Box became the singer in the crickets and did the song Piggy Sue Got Married that was released and uh, he left the band was killed in a plane crash just about the same age as Buddy Holly Bobby Fuller who wrote I Fought the Law and the Law 1 he didn't write it he recorded it it was written by Sonny Curtis but he died in mysterious cases and he was supposed to be the new Buddy Holly and then I guess as we look further you have Keith Moon from The Who who died on Buddy Holly's birthday and the night before he attended the opening of the uh, Buddy Holly story in London. And then you had Mark Bowen from uh, T-Rex, who, when he had his car accident, they found a badge that he was wearing that said, every day is a Holly day. And then you would have Tupac Shakur, who was shot on Buddy Holly's birthday. I'm going to stop Don't... you right there. Um, that's okay. enough to fill a show. <laughs> All right, Gary. Uh, we will take a time out, and we'll come back with our special guest as we talk about the day the music died. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye. Yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry. You say you're going to leave. You know it's a You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. If you knew Peggy Sue, then you know why I feel blue without Peggy. Not the Peggy Sue. All right, well, there's another audio clue as to the uh, identity of our uh, guest. Gary Patterson is with us, rock and roll investigator, uh, the author of The Walrus Was Paul, uh, uh, Tales from the Rock and Roll, or sorry, Hellhounds on Their Trail, Tales from the Rock and Roll Graveyard, and um, uh, many others. We'll, um, we'll get Gary now to introduce our special guest. Well, Richard, it's a great honor for me to introduce to your audience the very first goddess of rock and roll when God stopped writing about their cars like Maybelline and wrote about special girls in their life. And the song you just heard, Peggy Sue, uh, has probably been recorded so many times by so many different artists and actually still sounds as fresh today as it did when Buddy Holly recorded it. So let's bring on Miss Peggy Sue Guerin from Lubbock, Texas. Ah, Peggy Sue, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, well, thank you so much, Richard. I'm so thrilled to be on here with you and Gary. I just can't even tell you. <laughs> well, we are delighted to have you. Uh, wow, f- almost 60 years, 57 years. Um, mm-hmm. How does it feel? I mean, does it? I mean, time must have flown by, I'm guessing. Well, it has. It always feels like yesterday. Uh, you, it's something you never, you never, ever forget. You know, when you have somebody that you love and and they're a close friend, and you're involved in a project. And we thought rock and roll was the most important thing there was in life, and as it turned out, it was, you know. Mm. So it's always it's always fresh. Take us back to those heady days in Lubbock, Texas. You met uh, Jerry Allison, who was the drummer, mm-hmm. uh, would become the drummer with the crickets at Lubbock High, where where Jerry and you and Buddy all attended. Um, tell me how you and Jerry met and then how you and Buddy met. Well, I met Jerry, actually, when I was uh, in the seventh grade, so he played drums in the junior high band, and so when I got into high school, he, of course, was in the senior band, and so did I, so was I. I played uh, first-year alto saxophone, Uh, and I met Buddy when I was 15 in high school, and he had graduated the year before me coming into high school, so as I was leaving high school to go out to the band room, uh, he was coming in, and he knocked me down, and so that's kind of how our first meeting occurred. <laughs> just but, like in the movies, uh, just like in the movies. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And what was he like as a young man? Well, I mean, he was, um, he, he, was he, he died a young man, but I mean, how, what, what, what was he like then? He was a neat guy. He, um, you would have, he never bragged. You, you never knew that he was, that he had going what he had going, and he was always so common. I mean, he it, he was so interested in other people and what they're doing. It didn't matter what you did on his recording sessions. He always had time to thank you for, I mean, it didn't matter if you clapped your hands on the session, you know. It was like, thank you so much for playing on my section. So he was just very humble, uh, very nice, uh, very low-key. Uh, he did have a temper. He could have a temper. But uh, most of the time, it just, you know, it didn't show. But he was just a nice guy. And uh, how soon uh, after high school uh, was it apparent that, that uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets were destined for greatness? 
1957, That'll Be the Day, was a hit. And they had written a song after the movie The Searchers uh, with John Wayne saying That'll Be the Day. And Buddy said, well, we wrote it in an hour and 15 minutes, and uh, they recorded it. And, of course, it was a huge hit. But uh, That'll Be the Day, and then, then the hits came, you know, started to follow after that. So... And, that and was 50, 57, 58, 59, yeah. And Gary, I'll, I'll get you to jump in at any time, of course. Oh, I'm, hey, I'm enjoying the story. But uh, uh, when oh. and when did you and Jerry uh, f- uh, fall in love and, and, and marry? Um, my senior year in high school, I was going to a girls' Catholic school in Sacramento, and he had his mother call my mother in Lubbock, Texas, and see if, if I could if I could come to the rock show in the Sacramento Memorial Auditorium. And uh, my mother said, well, yeah, I think she can attend. That's okay. And uh, my sister, I was living with my sister and brother-in-law who were stationed in Sacramento in the United States Air Force. And so we invited Jerry Allison. We also invited Buddy to stay. But uh, like Buddy said, well, we can get another drummer, but we can't get another Buddy Holly to stand in for my place. So Jerry Allison spent the weekend, and we took him back to the tour to join the tour that weekend. So um, that was that was kind of the 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 new uh, uh, relationship we had started. We didn't have a very good one in my when I was in high school, but it was kind of up and down and what have you. But he had changed a lot, and so had I. So that's kind of where the relationship started. And uh, I mean, I wish we had three hours uh, <laughs> uh, to talk <laughs> of Peggy Sue. So we, I mean, we have to sort of jump ahead, and, and it does it really a disservice okay. uh, to the story. But mm-hmm. uh, right. w- w- what led to uh, Jerry uh, and Buddy, you know, parting ways, sort of professionally? Well, uh, they went on. A, we we got married. Jerry Allison and I got married July twenty second. Uh, 1958, and Buddy and Maria got married in August 14th, right after that. We honeymooned in Acapulco, and they came back and went on the road. Um, I kind of feel you on some personal details, but I didn't go on that that uh, tour because our new Impala was broken. And Buddy said, that's all right. You can ride with Maria Elena and I. And I said, no, 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 that's okay. I'll meet all of you in New York. You just go ahead and do the tour. By the time the tour was over, everybody was angry at everybody. It was like the worst situation I have ever walked into. I flew into New York to meet all of them, and uh, it was really very difficult. So Jerry had been doing his thing. By that I mean um, he was drinking and making new relationships or friendships, shall I say. Ah. Very delicately and Buddy was yeah. extremely upset over it, and Buddy was also very unhappy in his own marriage. So by the time I got to New York just to meet up with everybody, everybody was at odds with each other. But your friendship with Buddy um, remained even after the uh, the, the, the uh, sort of the dissolution of the of the crickets. As oh, a- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, we. We would have, uh, Buddy had already got the uh, architect to drop the plans for the recording studio here in Lubbock and the house that his mom and dad were going to live in, which was a gift to his mother and daddy on his birthday. And 
we would have, you know, he would have had the recording studio here and produced records. Decca had already offered to put up the financing, and uh, you know, it would have been business as usual the next day. But we just didn't get that far. Uh, again, I, you know, I invite you, Gary, to jump in any time if you want to add anything or, or ask a, a Peggy Sue a question. Uh, well, you know, maybe. Yeah, go ahead. What we ought to do is go back to uh, the song because there seems to be a lot of information that that hints at the idea the song was never really entitled Peggy Sue at first. It was called Cindy Lou. So what do you think about that, Peggy? I think that's awful, Gary, that you'd even bring it up. (laughs) Why did I invite him? Why did I invite him? I know. I just, you hear it, you know, and my answer is this, because if it was written about Buddy Holly's niece, and I, you know, I sort of know where the information came from, why did Buddy Holly write two songs about you? Because well, the second song was Piggy Sue Got Married. Right. Well, th- when I wrote my book, Whatever Happened to Piggy Sue, which is new. I have a new book out there on Amazon.com. Uh, Richard, thank you. And uh, when I wrote the book, I went back to the Norman Petty studio and to the vault. And I said, you know, Kenneth, Kenneth is the head of the Norman Petty estate. Kenneth Broad is. And I said, okay, if, if there's a song here named Cindy Lou, I want to find it. Because Buddy never wrote a song that he didn't write the chords down or the or the lyrics down, and we and there was or or recorded it, and we could find nothing. There was no Cindy Lou whatsoever, none, zip, zero, nada, nothing. So I just went from that, and I went. There was no Cindy Lou. Well, that came out in an interview on uh, the Buddy Holly story with John Gullrosen, uh many years back. And I, I just kind of thought, well, okay, that was sour grapes coming from Jerry Allison. But uh, we could find nothing, nothing to have to do with Cindy Lou. But, 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 but he did write Peggy Sue Got Married, and he wrote his parents a letter, and he said, now don't tell her because this is a surprise, and I want her to be surprised. Well, he wasn't talking about Maria Elena because Maria Elena was there with him. So he was talking about me, you know, and it was a total surprise and shock when I heard it. Of course, unfortunately, I heard it after he had died. But. Mm. How, how, do you know how his how, uh, buddy's wife Maria responded, or how she reacted when he wrote this song? I mean, was there any sort of jealousy there between the two of you? Well, there was a lot of um, <laughs> well, let's see, a lot of very cold feelings between the two of us. She was um, nine years older than I. And so there just was not a lot of communication between her and I. So she, how much older than Buddy was she? Five. She was five years older than Buddy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and she was she was nine years older than I. Do you remember the, the first time you heard that song played on the radio? Uh, Peggy Sue Got Married. Uh, or Peggy Sue. Oh, yes. The first time I ever heard Peggy Sue was at the Sacramento Memorial Auditorium when Buddy performed it. And then after that, I heard it on the radio. But the first time I ever heard it was on stage with him performing it. How did that feel? It was wonderful. I mean, they were doing what they wanted to do, and they wanted to entertain. And they were so happy at what they were doing, and especially Buddy. And, I mean... How does that when you're walking around and, and people are other people are listening to that song and maybe they don't know you? I mean, are you are you bursting inside wanting to tell that's that's they're, they're singing about me. <laughs> no, I don't do that. 
You're a better person than I am. I mean, I would be. I'd be telling everybody I know. <laughs> no, I don't do that anymore. It's like they. I go really. You like Peggy Sue? Well, that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only thing I did do, Gary uh, and I went to. Uh, uh, Baden and Baden, Germany, in November, yes, and did. I got to meet John Wayne's granddaughter, <laughs> and of course that's where the idea of that'll be the day came from. Right, right. And so I said, I, I just have to thank you, even though you're not your grandfather, but thank you so much for that'll be the day. And she just died laughing. <laughs> Interesting, uh, you know, source of inspiration for a song, isn't it? Yeah. A line from a mm-hmm. movie like that. It is. We are coming up on another break, but we'll get this conversation started here, and then we'll continue after. But um, uh, in the uh, the days or weeks uh, leading up to the uh, the plane crash, you had uh, some ominous dreams. Can yes, you, I did. Can you share those with us? Oh yes, I can. Yeah, well, let's start I, now, uh, and then we'll continue after as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, no, go ahead now. And then uh, we have a couple okay. minutes, and then, yeah, then when we break, and then we'll... I, I think it was October. I had a dream where this small plane went up in the air, and I had, I saw, there were, I thought it was Buddy, Jerry, and Joe B on the airplane with the pilot. But um, I saw the plane go up, and then I saw it circle around the airport, and I saw it come straight down. And so I was just frantic. It was one of those nightmare things you have. And uh, so the next day I said, you can't, I, I don't want you to, I don't want you to get a small plane. I don't want you to rent one. I don't want you to lease one. And I told Betty the same thing. And he said, now, listen, I'm safer up in the air than I am on the ground because there's more accidents on the ground than there is up in the air. And I said, no, you don't understand. This plane came down. So I had this dream three times. And... um the second time I had it, I told him again. He said, no, quit worrying about it. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And I really thought it was Jerry and Joe B. in the airplane with him. Of course, as it turned out, it was not. But uh, it it was really strange. And the third time I had the dream, I knew. I knew that we were that we were going to have a plane crash somewhere. And, uh, and uh, oddly enough, Richard, on February 2nd, we were on our way. Jerry Allison had broken away from Buddy Holly, uh, unfortunately for Jerry Allison, but we were on our way back to Lubbock, Texas to stay with his parents. And we're driving back to Lubbock on this two-lane road, and here is this truck that's parked up on the left side of the lane. We're going on the right side of the lane. And all of a sudden, this body, like, hit the trunk, the hood of our car, (coughs) and... um, Jerry slowed down, and we turned around, and it was a truck driver. I mean, he had jumped in front of the car and just came down on on the hood of the car. So we got the police, and we got the ambulance, and we took him to the hospital, and we gave uh, we we gave the report to the police of what had happened, and we went on to love it. It was late when we got in, and when we when we got there, we stayed with Mr. and Miss Allison because it was late. Sonny Curtis was also with us. And it's like this body had just dropped from the air, and um, oh my! I, I yeah, oh yeah, and this was February February second, going toward the third, and uh, so the phone was ringing the next morning, and and Sonny Curtis came in, and 
woke Jerry Allison up and he said, you, you need to answer the phone because they're saying the crickets are dead. So um, Jerry got up and started answering the phone and I sat at the kitchen table and drank coffee and read all the papers that came in, the newspapers that came in. And um, I, I just, I couldn't believe that all of this was happening at the same time. It, it was just like, it was like the dreams and the plane went down and then all of a sudden we had this body dropping down on the hood of the car and we ended up in a lawsuit. We won, but uh, it was just, it, it was all very, very funny, very strange. Very strange indeed. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. Whatever happened to Peggy Sue? Well, she's right here on the program, The Conspiracy Show. Peggy Sue Guerin, along with good friend R. Gary Patterson. We'll be back with more in a moment. Oh, hell, 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 You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Maybe, baby, I'll have you. Maybe, baby, you'll be true. I mean, listen to that sound. That's at least 10 years ahead of its time, at least. Wouldn't you say, Gary? Oh, exactly. Exactly. All right. Uh, Peggy Sue Guerin is uh, with us as well, uh, along with our Gary Patterson. Whatever happened to Peggy Sue uh, and her memoirs are now available on Amazon, in trade paper, and on Kindle. You want to pick up a copy of this because, uh, I mean, this is one of the greatest stories in rock and roll and told by someone who was there. She's the girl next door and uh, the subject of the immortal uh, Peggy Sue and Peggy Sue Got Married by uh, Buddy Holly. Uh, if I can just um, throw this over to you now, Gary, uh, and, and go back to the um, that fateful day, February 3rd, and talk to me about sort of the, the seating arrangements and... and um, who decided, how it was decided, who would go on the plane and who would stay on the bus and so forth. Oh, I'm sorry, Richard. Did you, did you ask me? I did, yes. Okay, I'm sorry. I, my <laughs> phone clicked. Uh, Peggy Sue must have been on the other side. Uh, basically what happened was that they'd been on the road and Buddy Holly wanted to get his clothes laundered and he wanted to sleep in a warm bed and not a school bus with no heat with uh, 40 below temperatures. So he chartered the plane. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. Peggy Sue can talk about this as well. But I know that the Big Bopper had the flu, and he talked to Waylon Jennings about if he could have Waylon's seat on the plane because it was Buddy and and the band, which in that case would have been Waylon Jennings and uh, Tommy Alsop because Carl Bunch was in, had been hospitalized with frostbite on because, his feet. Because of the tour, right? Because he was That's on that right. bus for much of the tour. On that tour. So... Anyway, I think that Waylon always enjoyed the idea of hanging out with the guys, and the Big Bopper threw in his brand-new sleeping bag that would keep him warm on the bus. So it wasn't hard to talk Waylon into it. And, of course, Waylon Jennings always told the story that when they went to the airport, 
that as he saw them get in. The big bopper got in first behind the pilot, <clears throat> Richie Valens, the next seat in the back, and Buddy in the co-pilot seat. And as Buddy was getting on the plane, he turns to Waylon and he says, hey, Waylon, I hope you freeze your butt off in that old school bus. And then Waylon says, yeah, and I hope your old plane crashes. Oh, dear. And he said he never got over that because that was the last thing he ever said to Buddy Holly. Of course. Now, now so if I could jump in, Gary, now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Was it Waylon that did the coin toss with Richie Valens? No. No, no. okay. <clears throat> it was Tommy Alsop. Ah. And this is what's strange because Richie Valens had a terrible fear of flying. And actually, he was convinced that he would die in a plane crash. And he went to his grandfather's funeral. And the day he went to the funeral, two planes collided over the junior high school he attended in California. And the pieces of the plane rained down on the playground. Oh, my. And every day, Richie would bring his guitar and he'd sit under this tree. And he'd play and all the kids would be gathered around him. Well, that day, he wasn't there. And when the plane crashed, it killed his best friend. Oh so this really fueled it even more. So for me to think that Richie Valens would want that seat in a plane, I mean, unless he was the star. I mean, it was supposed to be for the stars, whatever. So Tommy Alsop, he wasn't at the airport. They come back to check on the equipment at the surf ballroom, and he sees Tommy Alsop there, and he says, hey, Tommy, let me have that seat. And Tommy says, well, let's flip it. So they flipped a coin, and it was heads. And Richie Valens says, you know, this is the first time I ever won because it was heads. <laughs> and he took the last seat on the plane. And Tommy also, back in Texas, started a bar that he called the Heads Up Saloon because it saved his life. Now, there's another story, and that story is with uh, Dion and uh, from Dion and the Belmonts, who says that he was actually offered the seat, but he, he didn't want to spend the money because it would be what he would pay for a month's rent in his apartment in New York. So, you know, you have that version, you have the version with Tommy Alsop. It's just, it's just really strange that the Tommy Alsop story has started ever since then and has been going strong and all at once this one comes through. But Peggy Sue may want to give an opinion on that, too, on the coin toss. What do you think, Peggy? Well, I have to go with Tommy also. Yeah, I just I knew him personally, and I just know he isn't lying. I mean, you know, he didn't make it up. So, well, you know, they were both on the tour, but you know, Tommy was mm-hmm. closer to Buddy in as far as being in the band. Sure, I'm sure they were all good friends. Well, and Tommy, Tommy took care of our dance band, and then he graduated up to being a cricket when the crickets left Buddy Holly when they had the separation. So. um I just have to go with Tommy Alsop on that. There, there's another story that, that uh, Gary, you have shared with me, and that involves Carl Bunch, as, uh, who was, as you say, recovering from frostbite in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, both of you, either of you, care to share what Carl Bunch experienced that night while in the hospital bed? Well, actually, Piggy Sue and I did a interview on Pop Odyssey with uh, Carl Bunch. It's probably his last interview. Mm-hmm. And... As he was talking, you know, he was, you know, he was going to be a dancer like Fred Astaire, you know. And, you know, so when he went on the road, he was like 17 years old. He was the same age as Richie Valens, and he and Richie were close. So when he was in the hospital, the night, well, early, early morning on February 3rd, he wakes up and he told us that he saw Buddy Holly, the big bopper, and Richie Valens stand next to his bed. And they were smiling mm-hmm. at him. 
And he stood and he stared, or he didn't stand, but he was staring at them, and they stood there, and he said then they vanished, just disappeared. And he had heard just a few hours later that they had been killed in a plane crash, but he was convinced till the day he died that they had come back to visit him one final time after the plane crash. Now, and Carl Bunch, wasn't he a psychologist, Peggy Sue? Yes, he was. So he's not some guy, you know, who was not credible. And Mm -hmm. being a psychologist, he understands, you know, all the theories behind it. But yet, you know, he was very sincere in that. And uh, it was a very powerful moment. I'll say. Listen, I've got to take a time out. Uh, We will come back. Our Gary Patterson and Peggy Sue Guerin, Whatever Happened to Peggy Sue, her memoir, now available on Amazon as a trade paperback and available on Kindle. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. All of my love, all of my kissing, you don't know what you've been missing, oh boy. Oh boy. When you're with me, oh boy. Oh boy. The world can see that you were meant for me. All of my life, I've been waiting. Tonight there'll be no hesitating, oh boy. Oh boy. When you're with me, oh boy. Oh boy. The world can see that you were meant You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hold me close and tell me how you feel. Tell me love is real. Mm -hmm. All right, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett, along with uh, good friend R. Gary Patterson, uh, and you'll want to check out his website, rgarypatterson.com, and Peggy Sue Guerin, Whatever Happened to Peggy Sue, her uh, memoir, uh, available on Amazon uh, in a trade paperback and also available on Kindle. Uh, Buddy's widow, six months pregnant at the time, uh, she miscarried, I guess, due to the trauma. Um, and never attended his funeral or ever visited his grave, I'm told. Is that true? Well, that's true, Richard, but she wasn't pregnant. She wasn't? She she wasn't? She was not. No. She was not pregnant, and she did not attend the funeral. She's never been back to where Buddy has been buried in Lubbock, and uh, so no, no, none of that occurred. How did that story get started, that she was six months pregnant and miscarried? Did she start it? Uh, that came from her camp, you know. Why would uh, she say something like that? Uh, because she was writing a story, Buddy Holly's story, and none of which was true. And Mr. Miss Holly sued over that because the Buddy Holly story with Gary Busey in it. Yes. It was. It just was not accurate, and they sued and they won. So. All right. Um, the Beechcraft Bonanza plane that um, that was chartered mm-hmm. from, uh, was it Hubert Dwyer, I think? Uh, was it Hugh Dwyer, Gary? Jerry Dwyer. Jerry Dwyer. Uh, where is that? that? That plane is still around somewhere, the wreckage, correct? Well, well it's been. A, I think it's been confiscated. That's what I think. Mm. Uh, I think somebody came in and took the plane away. And I I had hoped that this last year they were going to reopen the case, but they didn't do that. But I don't know where the plane is, but I don't think Jerry Dwyer has it. 
Did Jerry yeah. not just pass away as well? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And see, let me just throw in something that about a year, maybe two years ago, and Piggy knows this, I got a phone call from a member of the Dwyer family, and uh, actually his wife. And I would talked to her earlier, a few times earlier, and she had called me, and I think what she wanted to do was have me write a book on their version of what happened. And, of course, you know, that version has to do with a, a hole in the back of the pilot seat that supposedly was a bullet hole that it wasn't the pilot's fault. But what they don't, or maybe they do understand, was that there was only one autopsy performed from the plane crash, and that was on the pilot because of regulations. And they didn't find a bullet hole. But when she was talking to me, I just asked her, I said, I've got a question. I said, do you have the plane? And when I said that, it got very, very quiet. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And then she said, we have some of it. We have some of it. So what's the mystery here? What do you think? Is someone hiding something? Yes. Do you care to elaborate on that, Peggy Sue? Yes, I would like to elaborate on that because uh, I went to Beechcraft and I said, if I can get the airplane... Would you help me find out what happened to this airplane? And they said, we'll do that for free. We'll put it on our computers. We'll find out exactly what happened to that airplane. But there was no airplane. We couldn't find it. And um, Jerry Dwyer was not real helpful in helping us find it. And so whatever happened to the airplane, I think it was confiscated. I think they may have left him a few pieces, but I think it was confiscated. After the crash, and and I think the reason for that is because there were ulterior motives of why why it crashed, and I'm being polite. Wait a minute. I mean, it was late at night. It was, we're told, poor wintry weather mm-hmm. conditions. But so you no, don't think that's no. no. There was no there was no snow coming in. There was no. We had no wind. We had no snow coming in when the plane took off. It had been de-iced. It had been, it had its annual. And now I learned to I learned to take off and land in Bonanza, which was the same same thing. It's a little bit newer model than that one, but there was nothing wrong with that airplane when it was pulled out there to take off. Now maybe it was overloaded. I, I will go there. Maybe they had too much stuff on the back of it that they stuck in there. But um, as far as I can tell, there was nothing wrong with the airplane. Well, Gary, J.P. Richardson was a pretty hefty guy. Uh, it is, yes. I think, it is, it's been suggested, maybe I probably heard this from you, Gary. I get all my information from you, <laughs> that, that maybe the Big Bopper was trying to change seats mid-flight. Is that possible? There, is a, there was a theory that the Big Bopper had been sick, and he was sitting behind the pilot. And someone had made a suggestion that... There may have been Buddy and the Big Bopper trying to change seats as the plane was taking off, which would really have thrown it off balance. And that was just mm-hmm. one of the rumors. you got to remember, after this plane crash, we don't know what happened. And, uh, you know, everybody goes out and they do conjecture, well, what if, what if this happened? And the other thing was that when the plane crashed, Buddy's body was found on one side of the fuselage and Richie Valens on the other. And the pilot was still in the plane, but the big bopper had been thrown 40 feet in front of the plane. Which and, never happens. Yeah. And I was just thinking, you know, if, the, if he was behind the pilot, I mean, the plane really had to break up 
and throw him out so he would bypass the pilot on the way out, but 40 feet in front over a fence. So, you know, maybe someday we'll get the answer, but there's a lot of a lot of conjecture to what happened on the day the music died. And matter of fact, Don McLean, who wrote the song, is uh, was charged not too long ago, and uh, I think for domestic violence. So, anytime you're coming up to February 3rd, I guess strange things happen, don't they? Uh, we just have a few moments, but but Peggy, uh, I understand that. Um, I don't know. In the in the last several years, relatively recently, you. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I, I seem to recall hearing something about you feeling that that Buddy has reached out to you. Oh yeah, I I have constant communication with him. Can you share a little bit of that in the time that remains? Well, I can't. First of all, you know, it's there. There are many things that have gone wrong through his uh, career, and he's very angry about it. And uh, and I don't blame him. I understand that. But you have to realize he's 22 at his thinking. So um, I, I, I'm in. Uh, I understand what he is saying. It's just that there's no way to go back and prove what it is he's saying. How does he communicate with you? Um, mentally, mentally. Yeah. And and what is he saying? And in terms of, I mean, does he does he I mean, what does he claim happened on that plane? Uh, he was on the right side of the pilot. Uh, he had no idea what was wrong with the plane. The uh, Big Bopper and Richie Valens were in the back. I think Richie Valens had a cold, as a matter of fact, just why he took that plane seat. But uh, he knew, I think he knew immediately when it went up, and the RPMs went up on the on the motor, and it wasn't going to come down. That he was in trouble. I think he knew immediately then, and uh, I think he knew he was murdered. Murdered. Uh, well, I call Some, it that. But all right, someone you fixed, may call it something else. Someone sabotaged the someone sabotaged the plane. Yes. Hmm. Somebody sabotaged the plane. If somebody came and sabotaged the plane, and somebody knows that. Now maybe they're dead now, and they are not going to speak from the from the grave. But something happened to that airplane. Any idea why? What what would the motive be? Does Does Buddy Holly have any idea? Uh, I think that it was the fact that <laughs> I think there were a couple of things that were in play here. I think that the the truly evil side of the world decided that. If they could get rid of rock and roll, it would be okay. But the truth of the matter is, is that I think that the plane went down because they were going to get rid of rock and roll. And I think Buddy Holly was the epitome of rock and roll. Certainly was. Certainly was. Mm -hmm. uh, Peggy Sue, I, I want to thank you so much for uh, for spending some time with us. Uh, well, Richard, I want to tell you that I just love you on Coast to Coast. I'm in America at Lubbock, Texas, but I listen to you every chance I get. <laughs> oh, well, that's very kind of you. I was going to ask you about okay. Lubbock. I was I was going to ask you about Lubbock, Texas. Uh, one of my favorite songs is is Mac Davis. Uh, of although course. Lubbock, Texas, in my rearview mirror. But what was he thinking? Absolutely. <laughs> he wants to get he out was, of Lubbock, uh, Texas. You know, he, he and I graduated the same year in 1958. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yes, that right? we did. It's a great song. 
And it is. Imagine. Love. What's the population of Lubbock? Uh, it's about 200,000. 200,000. And uh, mm-hmm. Buddy Holly, Matt Davis, and Peggy Sue mm-hmm. Guerin. That's three pretty impressive people to come out of Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, again, let's remind uh, listeners that whatever happened to Peggy Sue, this amazing memoir, uh, now available on uh, Amazon in uh, in paperback and uh, also available on Kindle. If you're uh, rocking, thank you, Richard. Thank you, thank you so much. And uh, our Gary, uh, always a pleasure having you on, my friend. Always glad and be back again next time. We'll do it again. All right, let's uh, get oh, folks. Oh yeah. OurGaryPatterson.com. All right, thank you both. Peggy Sue Guerin, and the late, great R. Gary Patterson. You will be missed, my friend. We will uh, resume next week uh, with our regular format. Uh, We'll have our our panelists and uh, lots of great guests, uh, as well as open lines, what's in the box. Of course, the uh, the live YouTube stream will continue as well. Uh, In the meantime, my thanks to Ian Robertson, Behind the Glass, as always, for his uh, capable work and uh, willpower, young willpower. Uh, thanks to you as well, Albert Venzel and Ryan White. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.